The following is an encore performance. You're listening to Tales from the South. This is Paula Morell, and welcome to the Tales from the South podcast. From UALR Public Radio and William F. Lehman Public Library, this is Tales from the South, recorded in front of a live audience each week. Tales from the South is Southerners reading their true story, unrehearsed and live on our intimate stage. It's all about reconnecting with each other through the power of a story. Here's executive producer and host, Paula Morrell, live at Tales from the South. So how about tonight's band, the Salty Dogs? What'd you think? Check out their website at thesaltydogs.net. All right, well, welcome to Starving Artist Cafe in the Argenta Arts District of North Little Rock, Arkansas, and to another edition of Tales from the South, presented by William F. Lehman Public Library right here in North Little Rock, Arkansas. And I'm your host, Paula Morell. On my left here, strumming his 1931 National Resonator tonight and every week is blues guitarist Mark Simpson. Mark wrote our theme music and plays for us live each week. And our incredible setback here, made of genuine screen doors from the Delta with mixed media portraiture, are by esteemed Arkansas artist V.L. Cox from her Images of the American South collection. A portion of the proceeds from the sale of these works goes to Tales from the South. More can be seen at her website, greatfineart.com. All right, are you all ready for some Southern-style storytelling? This week's stories are all about children and the often blurred line separating reality and fantasy, myth, and even truth. All stories are true and told by the Southerners who live them. Later tonight, Philip Cottingham has a sighting at 4 a.m. that could change everything. And then Jacob Craig confesses and confesses and confesses some more. But let's start the night with Sally Graham in the first grade and her chance to have a whole new life of her making in That Evil Club. You might think it was an impulsive decision, me at six running away from school, but you'd be wrong because I foresaw a future failure with figures and knew a life without arithmetic was my only hope. After yet another round of staring blankly at my math book, I told Miss Pogue, my first grade teacher, I didn't feel well and asked if I could go call my mother. All the teachers knew my mother. She was hospitality chairwoman for the PTA and hosted many faculty teas. My mother had named me after two Miss Arkansas pageant winners, Sally Ann Miller and Suzanne Scudder, Sally Suzanne. Mother and her identical twin sister were two years old when they entered their first pageant. They won. In the faded Arkansas Gazette article from 1933, Rubina and Shervina are sitting on the grass wearing swimsuits and frowns. Maybe they'd eaten too much potato salad. Maybe the sun was shining in their eyes and they were hot, but... Maybe they didn't care that much about the Greater Little Rock Grocers and Butchers Picnic Baby Contest. (laughs) 
My grandmother is kneeling behind them in the grass. She's wearing a long-waisted print dress, and her brown hair is parted on the side in a fashionable bob. She, too, looks weary. Well, Miss Payne sent me to the office to make that call. While the secretary of Sunnyside School, Miss Henry, was not looking, I held the bottom button on the black phone down. I then carried on a conversation with the receiver about my stomach ache. I felt just awful. Soon, Miss Henry told me to take care of myself and that I could wait outside Sunnyside's red brick walls for my mother. Instead, I skipped down the block past Miss Pogue's classroom windows, past the monkey bars, and the t-ball field to my friend Wiley Branch's house. The white shutters on his yellow house had black flourishes that resembled tiny smiles. Mr. Branch had painted the notes on the piano keys for Wiley to learn his scales. No one interrupted, and no one spoke out of turn at their dinner table, like we did at ours with me and my seven brothers and sisters. One time, when Wiley visited me for supper, he asked my mother why everyone fought. The branches were the living example of gallant from the Highlights magazine I rushed up the front steps to grab from the postman each month. I knocked on their back door and within minutes was eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich only Miss Branch could make. She combined the grape jelly with Jif to create a smooth, velvety food of the gods and spread it on white bread, crust removed. I began sipping the glass of milk she placed before me and rushed to explain I was moving in with Wiley and his twin brothers. Miss Branch stared at me, raised her reading glasses up to her nose, and started flipping through pages in the phone book. Guess what? I have a visitor today, Miss Branch began. Her voice was soft. My mother, years later, would tell me this part of the day's events. I had already visualized moving my own toy box into their vast rectangular room in their attic. My pink bucket would be a nice compliment to the boys' red, blue, and green trunks. Oh, you do? asked my mother. Yes, Miss Sally knocked on my door this afternoon. She's left school, she says. Sally! (laughs) I had entered Miss Pogue's first grade class a year after I'd failed as a Southern beauty queen. It's true. My family didn't go around saying, little sister, what a failure you are, but the notion hung in the air like turnip greens boiling on the stove. (laughs) My mother enrolled me in the triple crown of a southern girl's education, baton twirling, (laughs) tap dancing, and ballet, before I had entered kindergarten. A photograph shows me in first position wearing a pink and white sequined leotard, a pink tutu, pink tights, pink lip gloss my sister Mary dabs ever so slightly on my bottom lip, and white tap-dancing shoes I insisted on wearing. They were a better match with a leotard, no matter that this was our ballet photograph for Miss Serator's School of Dance. 
This was the preparation I needed to win the Miss La Petite Chattanooga pageant. But when it was my turn to smile, pivot, turn, and twist, I got distracted by the stage props. I was wearing a new lavender dress, a color my mother called orchid, with applique flowers. I had my eye on the potted plants next to the white picket fence. Instead of standing on the masking tape star downstage, I broke from the line of contestants during the grand finale, walked upstage, opened the gate, and began rearranging the daisies. I am told the other La Petite wannabes turned toward me while people whispered, then roared with laughter. Sarah Wadley, an employee of my parents and my mother's confidant, thought I spoke like Zsa Zsa Gabor and began calling me Lucy after that night in honor of Lucille Ball. Miss Pogue said I talked too much and wrote that on my first report card. I earned an S for satisfactory on all of my math assignments, but that did not stop me from turning the book over to the end paper to peek at that evil club, an imposing fortress of 11 times 11 and 12 times 12 columns, some people call multiplication tables. The columns of symbols mocked me, yet I'd flash the back of the book just like I tongue a loose tooth to feel the pain. My mother had been working alongside Sarah in the basement office, packing up pictures for customers across the southeast. She quickly ended the call with Miss Branch and relayed the story to Sarah. Sarah worked for my parents, mostly cleaning convex glass with vinegar, stapling cardboard boxes together, and answering the phone, natural portrait company. She befriended me a lot with our secret bad word of the day game where she'd whisper damn or hell in my ear and I giggled. (laughs) I hadn't even finished my glass of milk before Sarah and my mother whisked me away up to the hill to the principal's office. Sarah was convinced I had been molested. Mr. Wolf, our fast-walking and fast-talking principal, was the only adult male besides the janitor, Raymond, and Side the Cat, a, well, cat that walked the halls of the school and was featured in Mr. Wolf's loving arms in all of our class photographs. Has Mr. Wolf done anything to harm you, Sally? He peered at me as I hid beneath his desk. No, sir, I said, while folding my knees into my chest, my arms wrapping around my bent legs. I can only imagine Sarah's broad head bending down, eyebrows raised, lips pursed. My mother probably had her purse in her lap and her shapely legs crossed. By this time, Miss Pogue and my mother joined Mr. Wolf, leaning over, crowded into the small space between his desk and the window where the late afternoon sun cast a shadow on a photograph of the Chattanooga Boys Choir where Mr. Wolf volunteered. I didn't cry. 
There was no point. I was a girl facing a fear of symbols. On top of the fact I preferred Brainerd Drugstore Opry Ballet chocolate malts to dance routines. I had made up my mind, and that was that. My mother says I stayed under the table for an hour before I admitted it was math that compelled me to quit school. They didn't believe me. Miss Pogue volunteered to retrieve the book, and then I flipped the book over to expose the culprits. But Sally, school has only just begun. Don't you think Miss Pogue will prepare you for multiplication? I really didn't give that much thought. The wood floors of Sunnyside School still had a waxy, slick shine, not scuffed up yet. So I got out from underneath the desk, accepted my math book from Miss Pogue, and walked, not skipped, past the school office and past the teacher's lounge. For the first time, I heard the wood floors of Sunnyside School groan, creak even under my laced-up clogs. Well, anyway, I did look forward to more running and sliding near the cafeteria entrance when the teachers weren't looking. Sally Graham is a Hot Springs, Arkansas native and Peabody and DuPont award-winning writer. Credits include Mississippi Folklife Quarterly and SarahJune.com. She holds a master's in Southern Studies from Ole Miss and a history degree from Columbia. In our next story, Philip Cottingham catches a glimpse of a mythological creature and lives to tell the tale in Chosen. Could it be? My eyes burst open like I haven't slept a bit. They are nonetheless hindered from a good quick blink. Bam, bam, bam. There it is again. It's like 3.30 in the morning. Does he even use the front door? I never thought about how he actually got in the house. The chimney had been marked territory for years now. The fat man with the beard and the red suit and toys. He already had dibs. What other way would he use besides the front door? He is a six-foot-tall rabbit. It's Easter morning, the sun is yet to rise, and I have overheard what I believe to be the Easter bunny knock on my front door. What greater phenomenon could there ever have been for a four-year-old? Like a beautiful bass line, my old man's footsteps thump to reveal that he is uh, making his way to the summoning knock. I leap out of bed with the intentions to greet Mr. E. Bunny with my old man. But wait... Never would he let me get up this early. And just a few short hours ago, he was warning me to be in bed at a good time, or E.B. will just pass right on by my house, leaving me not even a morsel of candy. Well, I'm only four. I'll just take a peek and be on my way. As my dad opens the door, I creep up behind him. I can't believe it. My dad hangs out with the Easter Bunny. What a he-man. I can see peak inner ears cased by white fur hovering over my dad's head. As I peer through my father's legs, an unexpected butterfly flutters in my belly. Suddenly I'm questioning whether I'm supposed to see him in the flesh. 
or fur. <laughs> Stories of seeing the Easter Bunny face to face have never surfaced in my time. If I am to lay eyes on him, that all would change. This feels wrong, I say to myself. He's a secret messenger to us kids, a representation of philosophy, of life and rebirth. What if he got caught? We can't have this hanging over our messenger's head the rest of his life. Maybe he's never even seen a child before. It could scare him so bad that he runs away. Maybe even runs away forever. Another lost down a rabbit hole. Only adults can see him, I think to myself. Oh no. What am I doing? I, I gotta get out of here. I take off. I bolt back to my room, jump into my bed and scramble down into my covers. I'm doing the right thing, I say to myself. I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing the right thing. Later that morning, I sprint into the living room to join my family. It is clear that they are unaware that I am the first child to ever catch a glimpse of the Easter Bunny in the flesh. Or fur. I dare not mention the event. Laying with my back sunk into the carpet, struggling to block out the cartoons in the background... I try to replay the whole experience in my head. The knock, my dad opens the door, the fur, I freak, I run away. Why me? Why me? Suddenly I'm questioning whether it was all a dream. Then, of course, I shout. I pull myself up from the carpet, my mind and heart racing. I shout out loud, the carrots! <laughs> I sprint to the coffee table as my head clears. I reach down to grab the remains of the carrots I had left from my candy egg supplier. I run my fingers over notches that only teeth could have made. I hold the carrot high as if it were Merlin's sword. Of course, the carrots. This evidence is historical for four-year-olds everywhere. To adults, I'm just a kid caught in his own web of imagination with a couple of half-eaten carrots planted by his parents. Adults and their secrets, they leave a bitter taste in my mouth. To us kids, though, I am a prophet. I am the chosen one. The one to have the vision. The one to keep the myth buried deep within. I hold the half-eaten carrot up to my nose. I knew it. Bunny musk. <laughs> Twenty years later... My reflection stares back in the mirror. A shaving cream puffins my face, and I smile at how goofy all that was. Miss, but only miss. There are no six-foot rabbits. There can't be a six-foot rabbit. There, there can't be a six-foot rabbit. Philip Cottingham resides in Little Rock and is currently a waiter at Copeland's. He is a musician and a writer desiring to be published. The love for his family and his girl personify his personal will to flourish, disabling willed destruction. In our final story of the night, Jacob Craig unravels along with his story in The Confession. I was haunted by the thought of watching the other Catholic kids in my class stand up and take communion 
while I sat in the pew with the teacher and the handful of Protestants. <laughs> My legs started shaking up and down, knocking on the maple pew in the back of St. John's Catholic Church. I had to figure out what sins the others were confessing, so Father would think I was ready for communion. Week after week, I'd followed Dad through the wooden doors of St. Mary's Catholic Church, a 60-year-old church in downtown Hot Springs with a turn-of-the-century facade. I had read and sung with everybody else during Mass while we watched Father work behind the altar. The first time I did the whole Mass all the way through, like everybody else, with no mistakes, Dad bought me a brownie in a lemonade downtown. I had started going to Catholic school in the first grade, and in the second grade, my class received instruction for our first confession and first communion. I paid attention to the instruction because they told us if we didn't, we couldn't get our first communion. And before we got our communion, we had to have our first confession. At home, (laughs) Dad had asked me about the instruction while he pulled out pictures of his first communion. His favorite was a picture of him and Grandpa on the front porch. Dad was in a white sport coat with black pants and shiny black shoes. Grandpa had his hand on Dad's right shoulder, and they had the same kind of reluctant smile with their lips closed and stretched across their faces into the corners of their mouths. I knew Dad wanted me and him to take a picture like that in front of our house. Before Dad put the picture up, he said, We've got to get you a white jacket. (laughs) Father had arranged to lead religion class the day before the confession. He said he was subbing for Miss Clardy, and we all laughed. Father had stopped in sometimes, but it was never for the entire class period, and we never had his full attention. But on the day before our first confession, he was completely focused on us. Father was in his full dress coat, a black robish garment that went down to the tips of his wingtip shoes and had a line of black cloth buttons down the front. Father looked like a saintly Fonzie in that outfit. (laughs) He adjusted his glasses on his head and folded his hands together. Tomorrow's your first confession. It is a big deal. Before you can take the living flesh and blood of Christ, you have to confess your sins, and there's a certain way to do it, and you must do it right. For the rest of the class, Father drilled us on the act of contrition. He ended class when we started asking questions about whether accidentally killing someone counted as mortal or venial. (laughs) He said that he was ready for lunch and that we were too. As a line to the confessional started winding down, my nightmare of missing my first communion seemed possible. I had no idea what kinds of sins to tell Father to make him happy, so I just decided to make some up. (laughs) I used all my sources, the Home Alone movies, the villains on Saturday morning cartoons, and a couple of stories from shows on TV land. I started making my list in my head. I mouthed them to myself to practice, and when the confessional door opened, I felt ready. The confessional smelled like Dad's bathroom. Right in front of the door was the kneeler with the screen in front of it. I sat in the chair across from Father to show him I was brave and to figure out if I was passing or failing the test. Father sat in his black suit and black dress shirt with his white collar and green stole hanging from his neck to his knees. I sat down and crossed myself. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. This is my first confession. Father raised his head from the closed Bible he held in his lap and looked into my eyes. Tell me your sins, my child. Well, Father, it's kind of (laughs) long. His face stayed blank and his eyes stayed bored. Go ahead. He'd become a statue. I ran down my list. 
I lied, cheated, stole, coveted my neighbor's wife. <laughs> coveted my neighbor's goods. I killed some ants with a magnifying glass. I lied to my mother. I lied to my father and disrespected him. I took the Lord's name in vain. The priest's face stayed stone still. I had to turn it up a notch. <laughs> I burned down our neighbor's shed. I stole some money from the grocery store. I was getting a reaction then. I pursued the task like a poacher after King Kong. I punched an old lady. I kicked a crippled kid in the leg. I threw red paint on a crucifix. It went on like that. And his mouth dropped like he was watching a man swallow swords on a unicycle. Then he closed his mouth and grinned. Is that all? <laughs> yes, Father. He opened his Bible and he started reading the part that Jesus said about the golden rule. He absolved me from my sins with the promise I wouldn't do them again. I agreed. It sounded like a fair exchange. <laughs> for your penance, I want you to say the rosary once for every person that you hurt. Say all the mysteries by my count. You need to do it about 30 times. <laughs> Let's make it 30 for safety. I wanted to stop what was happening, but it was too late. That was just too much prayer. <clears throat> but if I fessed up to that lie, they wouldn't have to do a confession for lying to a priest, to the priest that I lied to. And that was just too much. Thank you, Father. I shook his hand and left. I walked through the glass doors up to the altar. The church had gotten darker. Me and a couple of other kids were still there. I knelt down and started praying. I believe in the Father Almighty, our Father, Hail Mary, Hail Mary, etc. The noon sun rose and fell in the sky. The priest finished the confessions hours ago, and I was still kneeling at the altar praying. At one point, I sat on my heels. Father came out and gave me a brief lecture about physical displays of reverence to my Savior. I listened. I didn't want any more Hail Marys. My knees started falling asleep, and then they started hurting. I moved to a kneeler and kept going. A kid from my class came in and handed me my makeup work. It was 3 o'clock. Mom was in the parking lot waiting for me. I started talking fast, talking in abbreviations. Oh, Mary, you are good. <laughs> Help us, we are evil. Our Father, it's your world. Bring us heaven. Amen. I rattled through the last rosary at 3.14. I left the church with my makeup homework, and I went to the parking lot where Mom was waiting in the car. Hey, sweetie, what took so long? Nothing. I had to finish some work real quick. I wanted to say that I had to ask the teacher about something, but the thought of one more Hail Mary was too much. <laughs> so what'd you do at school today? I buckled my seatbelt and met her eyes in the rearview mirror. Nothing. She started to back out of the parking spot. You always say nothing. Jacob Craig grew up in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and currently lives in Little Rock. He is chattier with his family and a little more honest with the clergy now. He is working on a memoir. How about our stories and storytellers tonight? What do you think? Thank you to all.
all of our writers. Thank you to our live audience. And thank you to UALR Public Radio. Tales from the South is presented by William F. Lehman Public Library. Additional support provided by the Argenta Arts Foundation, AY Magazine, and the Winthrop Rockefeller Institute. You can download and listen to our podcast on our website. We are open for submissions from Southerners. For more information, visit talesfromthesouth.com. Have a great night, and we'll see you next week at Starving Artist Cafe in the Argenta Arts District of North Little Rock, Arkansas, for another edition of Tales from the South. Good night, everybody. Writer accommodations for Tales from the South provided by Robin Wood Bed and Breakfast in Little Rock. More at RobinwoodBnB.com. And the Baker House Bed and Breakfast in North Little Rock. More at BakerHouseNLR.com. Live sound and studio assistance provided by the UALR School of Mass Communication. You too can experience tales in person as a member of our live audience. We're now traveling throughout Arkansas and the South, bringing tales to your community. Details on hosting a live show, our schedule, and ticket information can all be found on our website, talesfromthesouth.com. Thanks for keeping the art of Southern-style storytelling alive. And we'll see you next week on Tales from the South.